1: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know, grassroots neighbourhood organisations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? And you're always
0: uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
2: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto.
0: And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University.
2: Today we're talking with Hilary Klein, who's the author of a book called Companieres, Zapatista Women's Stories which is a really amazing look into the Zapatista movement and it's based on Hillary's experience living in Chiapas for a number of years so uh, she'll talk a lot more about that Uh, but it's a great book and everybody should go get a copy.
0: Yeah for sure it is a great book. Well we've talked about the Zapatistas a few times on this podcast but never really at any great length it's taken us way too long to get around to doing a full episode about them. Um, And Hillary's angle on it through the eyes of women in Chiapas is definitely a unique way of seeing into the Zapatistas, both as a political movement, uh, but also as just regular people uh, living lives of self-determination. So uh, cool project, cool book. Uh, Here's the interview.
2: So, Hillary, we're really excited to have you on the podcast this week, and we were excited to look over your book in the last week. Um, and we've got a bunch of really fun questions, but before we get to those, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what you've been up to lately and uh, maybe what you do now when you're not uh, thinking about the Zapatistas.
1: Sure, and thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. It's, it's really an honor. Um, so I currently work for a, a national network of local community based um, social justice organizations. It's called the Center for Popular Democracy. Um, And basically, since I came back from Chiapas, I I lived in in Chiapas, Mexico for several years, working with the Zapatistas, Zapatista communities. And I came back feeling like it was, you know, it was for me, my path was to kind of continue that work, but working for social justice in my own community, um, you know, here in the United States. So I've basically been doing kind of, immigrant rights, workers' rights, um, different types of social justice organizing for the past several years, that is and isn't, it sort of does and doesn't have to do with the Zapatista movement. It, it does in the broader sense of, you know, fighting for the same things, but very much rooted in my own kind of context and community. Um, that and and hanging out with my two-year-old twins, who are awesome. Uh-huh. <laughs> very cute. I do say so myself. <laughs>
2: uh two-year-old twins sound really fun yeah Uh, my partner emily they have a bunch of twins in their family and yeah i don't know it's like just double double the adorable i guess
1: (laughs) (laughs) double the work double the fun
2: (laughs) (laughs) uh matt what have you been up to
0: (laughs) nothing as cool as that i've been hanging out with my my three-year-old son who has had all kinds of illnesses this week Um, but he doesn't act like he's sick so it's been kind of insane uh, he can't go to, can't go to daycare. So he's been home playing games and jumped around on the couch. So that's, uh, that's been my week. Oh, I know. I hope you feel better. He, like he does. It's, it's funny because he's like, he's clearly sick. Like he has all the symptoms of being sick, but his like, uh, sort of demeanor and personality are, mm. are such that he is, uh, he is unbreakable and not sick. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't have kids, but I do have two cats. been hanging out with them a lot. Uh, (laughs) the, (laughs) the big, the big news in my apartment is we lost our power because I live in Toronto, which is like a, uh, unrelenting winter this year. So we like the springtime teased us a little bit and it got up to like Mm -hmm. fifties and I put away all my boots and everything. And then, uh, it just dumped a ton of snow on us. So Mm. yeah, I'm going to like, after this podcast is done, I'm going to go throw away a bunch of food in our refrigerator. Tragically. Um, yeah, I know. It's a bummer. Uh but that's the life I live. I chose mean, to live here. Uh cool. Well let's kinda of jump into your um your book here, Hillary. So usually when we talk to an author on this podcast, we ask them to give sort of just an elevator pitch for their writing. because uh, presumably people who are listening probably haven't read it or or don't know that much about it. So What motivated you to write Companieras, and what did you want to accomplish with it?
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned, I lived in Chiapas, Mexico for several years, um, for about six years, and I worked with women's projects in the indigenous communities that make up the Zapatista movement during those years. It was like 1997 to 2003 that I was down there, and so what motivated me was really the incredible kind of inspiration and dignity that I got from working with these women and wanting to share their stories with a broader audience. Um, And I was very motivated to do that anyway, but actually the the women themselves asked me to um, do this book. I had collected a bunch of women's testimony uh, for an internal document for the women. um, And after doing that, it was kind of like a popular education manual um, for the women to use in their kind of organizing and education um, internally. And then they said, could you do something like this for an external audience? Mm. And so I was you know, thrilled to do that. I really always saw the book as kind of a vehicle for their stories. Um, and it kind of tells, I, I would say it tells two stories. It tells the story of women in the Zapatista movement. So it, it sort of tells how women organized, how their lives changed, how they participated within the Zapatista movement. Um, and then it tells the story of the Zapatista movement itself through the eyes of women, which I think is an interesting and useful kind of take on any social movement. Um, is just the story of that movement. So I would hope that readers would learn a lot about the Zapatista movement in general, but kind of looking through the eyes of women. Um, and really beyond that. So, I mean, in, in terms of what I would want to accomplish, I think that it is very much about women in the Zapatista movement, but I, I think of it as, as sort of a, a tale of collective liberation and what collective liberation looks like. So what I would most want to accomplish is anyone who's interested in social transformation, in collective liberation, in, you know, transforming gender roles, um, could see it as kind of an example and a model for how those things can actually happen. Hmm.
0: Uh, It's such a That was a long uh, elevator ride. No, it's a a good. From zero to
1: floor 200. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good long elevator ride. That was long. Well,
0: that's a good way of describing the book, though, because it is, uh, I mean, to me, uh, someone who's definitely outside the community, it is a really educational book in in that it just really gets you into sort of the the midst of a lot of those um, important movements and sort of important. like centers in their community. So it's a really helpful book for uh, outsiders in in that sense. Well, um, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, some of our listeners probably don't even know who the Zapatistas are, um, which is a bummer. <laughs> Everyone should know. But uh, could you kind of help us get uh, introduced to the Zapatistas, uh, maybe through some kind of like quick historical sketch um, from the perspective of women or otherwise?
1: Sure. And, you know, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people – these days, you know, or especially the younger folks haven't heard of the Zapatistas, they were they were very well known um, in the kind of mid 90s um, around the world, inspired a lot of solidarity. But since then have receded somewhat from, you know, the kind of public spotlight. So um, the event that sort of catapulted them into the international spotlight was in 1994. They held a very brief um, armed uprising um and it only lasted uh like 10 days you know somewhere between a week and two weeks um and ever since then so now it's been you know more than 20 years um have existed as a they continue to have um a guerrilla army so they do you know they never officially set down their arms but more than anything else they are a grassroots social movement um So they're rooted in Chiapas, Mexico. You know, I mentioned Chiapas uh, that I lived there. So Chiapas is in southern Mexico. It's one of the poorest states of Mexico and has one of its highest uh, percentage of indigenous population. So the, you know, the, the, the population there tends to be poor, tends to be rural, is largely indigenous. Um, and, you know, ever since colonization basically has been marginalized, um, by the kind of global You know, global structures of starting with colonialism and then through the Mexican state, and so in a lot of ways, the Zapatistas really come from 500 years of indigenous resistance, um, and really sort of are rooted in that history. Um, The name the Zapatistas comes from Emiliano Zapata, who was a a general in the Mexican Revolution in the early 20th century. Um, So that's where they took their name from, and. One of his most well-known slogans was land and freedom. So of the different kind of uh, figures of the Mexican Revolution, he was the one most associated, again, with poor indigenous population of Mexico and fighting on their behalf. So he's really seen as kind of a hero for those folks to this day. Um, and then the, the Zapatistas, their a sort of official name is the Zapatista Army of National Liberation. So many people know them by the EZLN is the Spanish... Um, what do you call it acronym um and so it's EZLN. i often call it the zapatista movement because just because the zapatista army is like the word army is in their name and it's not at all to shy away from that it is very much who they are and and who they were historically and you know they do continue to have an insurgent army but because the character of their movement is largely peaceful is largely a grassroots social movement um, it to me just calling them the Zapatista movement of the Zapatistas sort of feels more um it characterizes them, I think, more accurately. Um, but many people know them as the EZLN. Um and uh, they were clandestine for many years, so officially formed um about 10 years before the uprising. So in 1983, the EZLN was formally um, came into existence with just a handful of um uh, guerrilla members of the insurgent army in the mountains of Chiapas and then they started recruiting and organizing with the indigenous uh, villages throughout Chiapas and really just speaking to people's sense of injustice um, and, and people really felt kind of caught between a rock and a hard place like they had been organizing for many, many years in, in um, efforts for land reform, in indigenous rights movements and really not gotten very far. Um, And sort of got to this point of deciding that the only way that we are going to be able to force the government to listen to us is by taking up arms. Um, And there are these very poetic kind of descriptions of of people deciding that they would rather risk dying from a bullet than, you know, see their children die from starvation or from malnourishment um, or preventable diseases. Um, So they they had this uprising in 1994, uh, January 1st, 1994 quickly came to an end they were clearly um, outgunned by the Mexican government and um, so they reached a you know an agreement and they, they did eventually sign a peace treaty with the Mexican government which was intended initially to be the first of, of, of a number of treaties um, but the Mexican government never it signed but it never implemented what's called the San Andres Accords and the San Andres Accords uh, we're focused on indigenous culture and autonomy. So that was that's been one of the things that the Zapatistas have fought consistently for um, and are most known for, um, but have a very broad platform that includes land and uh work and freedom and education and housing and democracy and justice kind of for all. So I think their movement has very much spoken to the specific context of, you know, landless indigenous peasants in southern Mexico, but has also really spoken to people throughout Mexico and around the world in terms of them kind of standing for something very universal. Um, In the years after their uprising, they, you know, in addition to kind of pushing to implement the San Andres Accords, kind of wrangling with the Mexican government for years, they also have implemented a project of indigenous autonomy, um and you know those all those structures are still in place today of they have an autonomous government autonomous healthcare system schools um it's really like how they have put their kind of collective liberation into practice in their own kind of territory
2: yeah that's super helpful uh i feel like that's probably the best like crammed condensed uh (laughs) timeline i've heard so uh, (laughs) thanks for doing that that's a lot of hard work um could you, so we've got some of the history on the table and then some of your motivation. And I guess just before we kind of jump into the uh, the research, one kind of last like background tool we could use maybe is uh, just thinking a little bit about their political philosophy or um, the idea of autonomy that's behind Zapatismo and behind some of those um, organizing structures. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of what it means for them, uh, maybe like philosophically or as a kind of political idea or something like that?
1: Yeah. So I think I would answer what is their political philosophy a little bit differently from what does autonomy mean to them. Um, sure. So I can sort of answer both. But if you if, if you're more interested in one or the other, let me know.
2: Uh, I mean, I feel like both of those are probably pretty helpful. We can keep like sketching out a little bit further with other questions later on, I guess, but uh, just kind of like a pl- preliminary. Um, here's what they're thinking about, I guess. Sure,
1: sure. Yeah. I mean, I think they're related. And I think part of it is because it, it has a lot to do with how Zapatismo has kind of evolved over time. Um, and so when I say Zapatismo, I mean that as kind of the political philosophy of the Zapatistas. It's just kind of the Spanish version of, like, when you say capitalism or Marxism, whatever the ism, Zapatismo is kind of the Spanish version of, of, of that, of Zapatista political philosophy. Um. So, I think Zapatismo really evolved, and, and one thing that I credit them with the most is the ability to have kind of pulled from different political strands. Um, and I think that is what enabled them to kind of evolve and become so significant both to the communities that they were working with, as well as, you know, as I was mentioning, being sort of so, um, resonating for people around the world. So there were a couple different strands that that the kind of became that became Zapatismo. One, um, I would say it's kind of traditional Marxism, um, and especially the folks that kind of came from other parts of Mexico and made this conscious decision to go to the um the mountains of Chapas and create a, a guerrilla army there were coming out of the kind of traditional Marxist revolutionary uh train of thought. Um indigenous history of resistance I mentioned earlier as well. Um, there's really, there's a long history of indigenous rebellion, revolt, um, struggles for land. And so that was very much formed who they were. And then the third thing I would say was the, Catholic, the influence of the Catholic church, um, and kind of liberation theology. So I think they were able to kind of take all those different influences and merge them into something, um, that, that brings us to amongst other things, autonomy, um, but one thing, this is maybe an aside, and so, you know, feel free to discard this in your editing process if you want, but uh, a lot of anarchists really relate to the Zapatistas and to Zapatismo, and I think in in a weird way, like the different strands that the Zapatistas pulled from ended up with something that has a lot in common with anarchism, mm-hmm. in terms of being very kind of critical of the state, um, uh, sort of creating structures of power from below, a commitment to kind of horizontal structures, um, a, something of a commitment to kind of making the road by walking, like kind of creating the the sort of dual power structures of kind of creating the society, building the society that you want to see tomorrow, building that today. Um, but it did not come historically out of anarchism. So it's just an interesting thing of sort of where they ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so I think the, the commitment to autonomy kind of grew out of that. And the last thing, again, you know, feel free to edit this down, but the, um, you know, in 1994, when they had this uprising, it was still along, their thinking was still kind of along the classic Marxist line that they thought, you know, other people were going to rise up with them. And then they, you know, they imagined on some level overthrowing the Mexican state and kind of becoming the new state in a kind of classic revolutionary fashion and not quickly realized that wasn't going to happen, that that's just not how they were going to win but I think also continued to be very open in terms of evolving their own political philosophy and really ended up in this place of kind of a different understanding of of building power from below. Um, That really is where I think what took them to the, the sort of the construction of indigenous autonomy. So I think, you know, and then I mentioned earlier that the San Andres Accords actually gave indigenous peoples around uh, throughout Mexico, rights to local and regional autonomy. And so in a lot of ways, the Zapatistas were just saying, you know, we're going to just go ahead and implement this ourselves. Actually, the government agreed to it. Um So it's not an effort to secede, just for what it's worth. I mean, I think, especially in the kind of mid-90s, late 90s, uh, many people sort of misunderstood the Zapatistas as wanting to kind of become a separate state and secede from Mexico. And that's not what they're trying to do. They're basically trying to exert collective self-determination, you know, a lot of, you know, I think folks, you know, or your listeners or kind of folks on the left in general to me, like that concept of self-determination is closer to the says version of autonomy than anything else in our kind of collectively shared lexicon. Um, mm. so I think, you know, they basically want to control the resources, the natural resources, the economic resources in their own regions. They want to make the decisions that impact their own lives. Um, they want to have a say over their own destiny. And so they, you know, created the structures to, to do that basically. Um, and so they, um, a lot of it is, it does have to do with kind of indigenous culture and, and, and language and traditions. Um, and some of it just has to do with rejecting the, you know, the, the Mexican state, its corruption, capitalism as an economic system, and just kind of experimenting with building something that would really reflect the, their own values.
0: Uh, that's really cool. That's actually a really helpful elaboration on autonomy and sort of like what what's going on sort of political philosophy wise behind some of the Zapatista movement. Um, Well, so I've read a handful of things about the Zapatistas throughout my like graduate school stuff, and it's always made me really excited about them. Um, It's like hard not to be. It's such an interesting uh-huh. thing to happen. And, and like the and the rhetoric surrounding it is like always just really exciting. Um, But I, I feel like reading your work, I've gotten like a better understanding, I guess, about sort of the minutiae of of like life sort of in Mm Chiapas. And that is what I think I value most. Um, And to me, it seems like you're able to draw out some of that, like everyday life stuff, just because the way that you focus on women and the ways that they interact with the larger community. Um, So anyways, that's, that's something I really appreciate about about the book you've written. So how do these structures um, make space for women in, in, uh, in the Zapatista communities and like what's revealed in the overall structure of the Zapatista revolution by focusing on the treatment of women? What's sort of the significance there?
1: So, um, first of all, thank you for that comment about my book. I Hopefully that is something people take away from it. And I think, you know, again, just that I lived there for several years. It was, to me, what the Zapatista movement was, was much more than, um, I mean, it was just something very integral. And um, I, I mean, I just, I continue to have so much respect for the Zapatista movement on so many levels. And um, you know, living there for so many years and then also being away for so many years, no, you know, nothing has diminished that. Um, I think the, the focus on women in general, I would say it, so in some ways, even preceding the kind of the autonomous structures, um, women played a very, very important role in the Zapatista movement from the beginning. And, you know, so dating back to the clandestine years through the uprising and then, you know, the autonomous structures, really came into place. They began in the kind of several years after the uprising to actually kind of take root. And so, and and I think actually in some ways, some of the most kind of explosive transformations in gender roles and in women's kind of role in the of movement happened kind of earlier than that. So I think in some ways, the, the autonomous structures represent a lot of kind of gains that, the, that women had already made, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, And I think that was really a, that was really the result of kind of a push from below combined with kind of a commitment from above. So there were kind of leaders of the Zapatista movement who from the beginning were very committed to women's rights to participate and uh, women's rights in general. You know, although to say they were primarily at that point sort of interested in women's participation in the fight, Mm. in the struggle, right? So they very much defended women's Right to, you know, pick up arms and become part of the Zapatista army to be present in the movement in all these different roles. They were not initially trying to tackle, you know, sort of patriarchy writ large. Um, But then women really responded to that call. And then I think, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there had been a lot of kind of organizing through the Catholic Church where women had, you know, had a space to really talk about their rights and kind of come to voice. And so there was this kind of mass kind of groundswell of women saying, yes, you know, we want to be part of something that transforms our lives, our communities and the entire world. Um, and so this kind of organizing and groundswell from below combined with this kind of space that had been opened up by the kind of the leadership of the Zapatista movement really, I think, transformed women in the Zapatista movement, but really in that society in general. Um, and, you know, and I think one thing to, to remember when it's, and in some ways it's hard to separate women's role in the Zapatista movement from their role in their kind of communities or society in general, because it, it, it's less the case now, but for a certain time period, that whole kind of region of Chiapas really was Zapatista territory. So there were whole villages and whole regions that were part of the EZLN, you know, belonged to the EZLN, worse zapatistas, And so it was basically like women's participation in politics, in government, in education, in health, in the family, like everything was being transformed. Um, And women were starting from a point of extreme marginalization and oppression. So, I mean, another good thing to remember is just that women were starting from a place where they were not really participating at all in any public sphere. Hmm. So they had really limited voice in any type of kind of public leadership roles. Um, You know, there was extreme level of violence against domestic violence against women was was considered totally acceptable and normal. Um, Women were married, you know, to someone who their parents chose for them when they were, you know, 12, 14, 15, had, you know, a dozen kids, um, were only allowed to leave the house if they asked permission, you know, if they had permission from their husband or their father. So, you know, very little access to education and healthcare. So this was, you know, if you think about this as the starting point and then this kind of radical revolutionary social movement comes along and just opens up space for folks to think about, all of the above, right? They're thinking about why are the, the structures for inequality, the structures for, of poverty, the structures of racism, the structures of patriarchy, and people are sort of questioning all of these things. And so for women, you know, and all these other things matter too, right? The fact that they took over land and, you know, have a much different economic situation than they did is just as important to men as it is to women or as to women as it is to men. But for women, of course, there was this, this very real kind of process of questioning gender roles and and transforming, um, you know, the understanding of women's rights in this very basic way. Um, and so, you know, some of what that looked like was women going to the mountains, picking up guns, becoming part of the Zapatista the movement, and then really just transforming the – becoming role models, you know, showing that women could do something else with their lives and could take on these roles of leadership and – you know, uh, Ana Maria, this major Ana Maria was one of the women commanders who led the uprising in San Cristobal de las Casas, which is one of the most kind of well-known cities that they took over in 1994. So there were a number of women who, you know, who really just paved the way for other women. And then just in every village, there were women's cooperatives growing. And, and that was the projects that I worked with were these women's collectives. Um And so all these different ways. So that was a very roundabout way. To get to autonomy. (laughs) I think so by the time the Zapatistas were creating these structures of autonomy, there was a, there was a much deeper kind of commitment to women's rights and and women's having sort of an equal leadership role. Um, so when they went to create the autonomous councils that would kind of govern regionally, when they went to create um, autonomous schools, autonomous healthcare, in all of those structures, they sort of built in women's voices and, you know, a response to women's needs in a way that I think would not have been the case if there had not been this kind of decade of internal revolution uh, where women really fundamentally changed the understanding of, you know, gender roles in, in their society.
2: Yeah. Uh, do any kind of stories, I guess, really stick out? I mean, you uh, you tell so many of them in this book, uh, but one thing that I, I guess I kept finding so, so interesting and, and compelling uh, was these stories you would tell of, like, how some of these um, changes in perceptions of women and how women were perceiving their own uh, autonomy and liberation, uh, how those kinds of perceptions were being legally codified and then also uh, negotiated legally within those kinds of Zapatista structures. Um, So, you know, there are like a number of revolutionary laws specifically uh, regarding women. Um, And then, like you were saying, there are so many uh, examples or sort of role models, I guess, Um, so do any of those kinds of stories of like something that you saw or witnessed or, you know, were told about really kind of still resonate with you?
1: Um, I mean, there's so many that it is hard to choose, but I would (laughs) say a few, I mean, so one on more on the historical level, you mentioned the, the revolutionary laws, um, the women's revolutionary law and how it came about, I think was of tremendous importance. Um, so it came about by some of those, women who were in um, military roles of leadership, um, really kind of um, surveying, like they went out and they just talked to women throughout the Zapatista region about, you know, what did they want? What changes did they want to see? And so it was this very kind of in-depth participatory conversation with women that, you know, resulted in the women's revolutionary laws. And they sort of went back and forth kind of from centralized to decentralized to come up, come up with it. Um, and they're very basic rights, but they're also, I mean, there's, you know, I think it's a 10 point, you know, 10 points of the women's revolutionary law. Um, but there are many things that, you know, are, would still be revolutionary if they were truly kind of implemented. Um, and some of them have been implemented much more than others in terms of, you know, just at least the women's lives today. Um, but so that's one just kind of historically, In terms of autonomous structures, one that I think is is worth mentioning is this woman, Ruth, who was a member of the autonomous, um, the uh, the Justice Commission. It's called the Honor and Justice Commission, but it's basically kind of like the um, judicial branch of the autonomous government. Um, And so you know, there didn't used to be really a space for women to kind of be heard when the, you know, the indigenous communities did have kind of elders who played a role traditionally of kind of uh, mediating disputes or, you know, conflicts. Um, but I think, you know, again, both the understanding of women's rights shifting over time, as well as just having a woman there to hear them really transformed, you know, so there's, there's a part of my book where I talk about this woman, Ruth, who sits on the Honor and Justice Commission, and then this woman, Carlota, who, who brought her case of domestic violence, and both of them kind of telling the story of how they resolved the case. Um, and, you know, part of the reason I mentioned that one is because I, I was thinking about it a lot recently, you know, with the whole Me Too movement, and, um, you know, the 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 doctor who was abusive of all of the, the young gymnastics, the girls and women in the gymnastics, mm-hmm. the U.S. gymnastics team, and the fact that there was this female judge... And her kind of, you know, the thing that she wrote about how unacceptable, how horrific what he had done was, you know, it still matters to all of us to have women in positions of authority who can hear us when something, you know, bad happens to us. It, like it, so it just, it, it, I think that one is really sort of cross cultural or, or speaks to, you know, people in different contexts. Um, the one that probably sticks with me the most as far as just um, kind of a, a person. It was this woman um, Isabel? Who um, and many of these women, it's you know they're not their real name, but she was um, she was a military leader for many years. She um, she she joined the EZLN when she was fourteen. She basically grew up in the mountains and she kind of rose through the ranks of uh, of the Zapatista army and then held kind of a, a role of political leadership. Um, and her story just is, is kind of sprinkled throughout the book, but just the way that she talks about. You know, the personal sacrifices she made to join the army, but then what she kind of gained from it in terms of being able to kind of grow into this amazing leader and um, kind of like I mentioned earlier about opening space for other women is is really inspiring. And, and I think one of the one of the voices that kind of stands out the most in the book.
0: That's such a cool um, elaboration on that situation. I, I mean, the part of the book that sticks out most to me is... Um, is one of the later chapters where you start going into some of the like, I guess, criminal justice system and how that's parsed out in terms of like divorce and things. Mm -hmm. It is uh, such a, I don't know, uh, radically interesting thing um, that I I guess putting that different context really uh, strikes me. Well, Mm -hmm. um, kind of circling back to uh, something you mentioned earlier uh, about the relationship between the Zapatistas and the Mexican government. um, What is that relationship like now? Um, what does it mean for them to, like, run a candidate like Marachui? Um, is it tense? Is it kind of expected? I guess, what's the uh, what's the feeling?
1: So, I mean, take some of this with a grain of salt, because I haven't been back to Mexico for a couple of years, and, you know, I'm not as close to it as I was when I lived there, of course. Um, but the, 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 the Zapatista movement and the Mexican government have basically been at something of a standoff for many years, where... The Zapatistas, you know, created these structures of indigenous autonomy that continue to exist. So there is sort of like a dual power system in Japas. And the Mexican government has continued to kind of wage something of a low intensity war, psychological war against the Zapatista communities. Um, that was much more intense kind of in the late 90s. Um, but it still exists you know threats against uh you know a lot of different ways that the Zapat- that the Mexican state seeks to kind of undermine the zapatistas um but there's they've they sort of coexisted for a long enough at this point that i i mean i can't i'm not, i i can not speak for the mexican government it seems like to some degree they've kind of just you know let them be at this point um at least to some degree uh, as opposed to a very active kind of effort to just you know, destroyed the Zapatistas mm-hmm. that was the case in the late nineties. Um, with Mari Chuy, uh so if folks haven't heard of her. it's a nickname. Her whole name is Maria de Jesus Patricia Martinez. Um, so Mari Chuy is definitely easier to uh, remember. <laughs> um, she is a candidate for president in the, um, the elections, the presidential elections this year. Um, one thing that I think is worth noting though, the Zapatistas have been known for a real skepticism, of political parties and kind of a rejection of the electoral kind of path to power. Yeah. And I think them running a candidate does and doesn't change that. I mean, they're obviously engaged in that, um, you know, in that process, but uh, she, she represents the CNI, which is the Spanish acronym for the national indigenous Congress, which is, you know, a Congress of indigenous peoples around Mexico. It is not traditionally a political party. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's really different than them you know, joining or aligning with one of the kind of historical political parties of Mexico. Um, and my sense is that, that her candidacy is more than anything else, kind of a platform to speak to, um, all Mexicans and, you know, try and get their message out, try and create space, um, for that type of dialogue. I mean, partly because I think, you know, realistically, they don't, nobody expects her to win, um there've been a lot of kind of legal and political obstacles to her candidacy at all. But I think it has more of a, you know, it's more of a kind of building of independent political power um, and a platform to have a dialogue than it is kind of an an intention, you know, for the EZLN to kind of become a political core party in the traditional sense of the word.
2: Yeah. I feel like uh, that's something that's really interesting about the Zapatistas is that they um, they're really playful with how they relate to politics in general um or at least like uh like reading stuff from subcomandante marcos or just different communiques that come out of there they're all kind of very um like often very funny or mm-hmm. uh very like um like, it's somewhat ironic with respect mm-hmm. to things like electoral politics. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's something really kind of fascinating about that, especially because leftist politics can be, like, really, uh, like, overwrought sometimes or, yeah. like, painfully yeah. authentic. Uh, yeah. So there's something kind of refreshing about that. Um,
1: right. Like, but I, him, don't take yourself so seriously. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love that. Um, so... Uh, Maybe kind of coming off of, you know, how they're doing that in a a little bit with respect to electoral politics, um, there are like a few references in your book to different external organizations. Um, So you mentioned nuns and the church and, you know, Bishop Samuel Ruiz, who we can talk about some more, and then also secular leftist organizations, Maoists and that kind of a thing. Um, How do those sort of outside sources all feed into the Zapatismo identity and kind of get I guess, taken up and, and mixed around and, uh, and you know, uh, feed into this new kind of movement?
1: So I think a lot of the um, the organizations that, that you mentioned that I referenced in kind of the first half of my book had more to do with the creation of the EZLN, you know, of the Zapatistas as the kind of movement they came to be. And I think that had to do you know, more with what the kind of political landscape in the 1970s. So, you know, there were these Maoist organizations and, and that was kind of part of that whole kind of the different political um, tendencies I was describing earlier, um, you know, of traditional leftists, mm-hmm. of, you know, of liberation theology, of indigenous kind of history of resistance that that sort of made the Zapatistas into kind of what they are. Um I think, you know, all those organizations played a historical role. I think, you know, in the years since the, in terms of kind of forming the Zapatistas, in the years since the uprising, um, you know, the EZLN became this very kind of nationally and internationally known entity. And so I think has had a very different kind of relationship of often, you know, just of solidarity, of kind of inspiring each other. And that is really broad. I mean, I think the, the types of organizations, um, that have, uh, you know, been in contact with or been in solidarity with the Zapatista movement on some level range from, you know, from, from reunions to, um, you know, indigenous movements in Mexico and around the world to anti-globalization activists. Um, there's just such a breadth. And so I think it's, it's, it's a different relationship of, um, you know, just kind of broadly being part of a movement to, um, you know, to challenge neoliberalism, to, to, to put a more just system into place. Um, so I, I mean, I just think that the nature of that relationship is a little bit different than the ones that were kind of part of the, the mix that then kind of became the Line. I'm not sure, if, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question exactly, but.
2: No, that makes sense for sure. Um, but maybe I guess uh, maybe we could kind of rewind historically back to some of those, some more of those uh, kinds of forces. I mean, especially like um, obviously for us, we're sort of interested in the angle that the church um, has uh, in the creation of the EZLN. Um, and you were talking a little bit earlier about how that was one way that women started to be empowered. And you have some great uh, sections in your book on that. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about that? Like how do, how did... Um, For example, like having indigenous catechists sort of feed into women feeling empowered to uh, find a voice later on in the EZLN.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So the Catholic diocese played a huge role, I think, in um, what would become the Zapatista movement. But really kind of for indigenous communities in general, feeling very, you know, feeling empowered to kind of take... um, you know, sort of take their destiny into their hands and organize to, to create change. Um, you know, the Catholic Church obviously has a complicated history, but the uh, Bishop Samuel Ruiz, who was the bishop from 1960 to the year 2000, um, was just a, a, a deep, deep advocate for the poor, for indigenous communities. Um, and he kind of led a diocese that really implemented that in many, many ways. And so... Um, and specifically with women, but, you know, more broadly, they, for example, they translated the Bible into um, several indigenous Mayan languages that are, you know, the different dialects that are spoken um, throughout Chiapas. They taught many people how to read and write. They really just engaged in kind of critical thinking. Like, I think they used the Bible or they used kind of uh, Bible study or, you know, religious spaces to really talk about people's current reality and justice and you know how were they going to collectively find solutions to their problems um so 1974 the church uh hosted something called the indigenous congress and that moment is often pointed to as this very pivotal moment in when indigenous communities really began to kind of organize and you know especially at a certain time like throughout the kind of 80s the EZLN was one of many kind of uh, you know, militant indigenous um, or campesino organizations, kind of peasant organizations. Um, and uh, the Maoists in the church at that time were also working closely. Like they, the Maoists helped the, uh, plan the indigenous Congress of, of 1974. Um, and so there were many, many different ways. And then there was just a lot of overlap um, between the Zapatista support base. And, you know, people who were active in the Catholic diocese. Um, so there were a number of, you know, you mentioned catechists and deacons and just people who were involved throughout the Catholic Church, who then went on to be very active um, in the Zapatista movement. Um, and it's just interesting because they are such different institutions. I mean, fundamentally, you know, they believe different things, right? these <laughs> all you know, sort of fundamentally decided that armed struggle was the path that it was going to pursue. Um, It's not a religious institution at all, but there was so much overlap in just kind of their critique of what was unjust, um, unjust about, you know, society and, um, you know, giving people the tools to kind of do something about it. Um, There are different historical debates about how much they actually kind of actively collaborated. um, But certainly in my experience in areas where, the diocese and the EZLN were both very active, you know, and overlapping. You can really see just this, this kind of strength of social fabric. Um, and with women in particular, there were, um, so there were a number of nuns who, you know, either were already working in Chiapas as well as who kind of were drawn to Chiapas because of uh, Samuel Reese had, had put this invitation out, because of just the general kind of feeling that there was something interesting happening there. Um, so there were, there was a lot of nuns in particular who did work with women. And, you know, so in this broader context of liberation theology and of kind of working with the indigenous communities, with women in particular, they did create um, spaces for women to do Bible study, you know, for women to see examples of women in the Bible as role models, to talk about, you know, the uh, the role that women could or should have. I think for a lot of people, it was, it was just, it was, it was an opening of space. Like it was just a space to bring women together. And even, you know, even with the moral weight that the church had, it was still difficult, right? There was a lot of resistance from men having their, you know, wives or or sisters or daughters go and meet together. Um, But I think that that was a critical, the fact that the Catholic church did have a lot of moral weight it, it opened up a certain amount of space that I think would be would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to otherwise, you know, just to begin the conversation um, about women having rights, about women having a voice, about women participating in, you know, in their communities in a different way. Um, and so there was this uh, a women's commission of the diocese, which is called Colimou, um, that women just for years and years later continued to reference. And so, I mean, it was when you were asking earlier about, you know, what stands out to me, I mean, there's just certain things that I was not around for. So I, you know, by the time I went down to Chiapas, it was several years after the uprising. The two things that always stood out to me historically, the way that women's eyes would light up when they talked about the female insurgents and the kind of women who had joined the army coming back to the communities to give talks or to kind of, you know, do political education, the way their eyes would light up about that and the way their eyes would light up when they talked about kobilwo was just amazing mm. like they it was clearly this transformative thing in their lives and you know throughout their families throughout their villages that was just like so fundamental i mean it literally gives me goosebumps now talking <laughs> about it <laughs> thinking about these women talking about this experience this transformative experience um you know of, of of working with the diocese so it was it was really incredible for many of them
0: uh, that's cool and very illuminating. Um, a few minutes ago, you said the phrase, uh, the Catholic Church and the Maoists were working together." And uh, man, that's not something you hear every day.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's
0: <laughs> it's good news for this podcast, though. um, cool yeah. well, um we're we're also uh, on this podcast. They eventually parted ways, but... yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we're also no strangers to talking about some of the like the the rough stuff that the Christian church has often been a part of, uh, historically as well. So, um, could you uh, say a few things about maybe some of the barriers that, uh, the church put up in the area and then, and then how also, uh, like, indi- like indigenous spirituality informed the Zapatistas?
1: Yeah. I mean, I am, you know, certainly I'm, I'm not hesitant to critique the Catholic church and I'm not, as, as I've mentioned to you both before, I'm not a religious person, I'm not sure that I have historically much more to add than your listeners you know, may already know in terms of the overall role that the Catholic Church played in participating in Spanish colonialism of the Americas and the kind of, um, you know, the marginalization of the subjugation of indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. I will say, you know, in spite of that history, Chiapas has historically also been a place where, where that history has been mixed. So San Cristobal de las Casas, which is, you know, one of the, mm-hmm. um, primary cities in Chiapas. And I mentioned earlier in terms of one of the places the uprising took place was actually named for Fray Bartolomé de las Casas, yeah. who was, um, a 16th century, um, Dominican friar who then became the first bishop of Chiapas. And he was really an advocate for, uh, indigenous rights and, you know, succeeded in, 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 in pushing the Spanish to kind of, uh, pull back from some of their worst abuses of, um, the indigenous people in the Americas. So just for what it's worth, I mean, these different, the different role that the Catholic Church, I mean, again, I'm not defending it at all historically, but it is interesting the different kind of roles that have been played over time mm-hmm. and that Chiapas has actually been a, a focus of, you know, of, of that history on both sides for a long time. Um, in terms of indigenous spirituality, I mean, again, you know, this might be something that, that, that many of your listeners are, are, are more familiar with from kind of a broad understanding of this. But I think, as in many places around the world, one of the ways that the Catholic Church adapted, you know, or was able to kind of convert people and, 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 and put down such deep roots was by kind of absorbing local religious traditions. And so, you know, throughout Mexico, the Catholic Church kind of adopted certain amount of, like, the Virgin of Guadalupe is, you know, the kind of beloved Virgin Mary um, in Mexico, um, is is very kind of specific to Mexico. Um, And in Chiapas, part of what that looked like was really just integrating, you know, kind of indigenous religious practices, which were much more kind of, um, what do you call it? What's the opposite of monotheistic, like believing in many gods?
0: (laughs) Polytheistic? (laughs)
1: Polytheistic, yes. Polytheistic kind of nature-based religion. So there's still very much a sense of like corn is sacred, water is sacred. There are a lot of kind of Catholic traditions that a traditional Catholic, you know, from somewhere else in the world would go and say, you know, that's not part of any ritual that I'm aware of. But, you know, the way that they use kind of their own natural surroundings or things that are just kind of integrated into their rituals and traditions Mm -hmm. Um, and festivals and, and all the above. So I think that's, you know, the, very much the case. And I think that probably somewhat enabled um, that sort of the very close relationship between the, the overlap that kind of took place between people who were active in the diocese and active in the Zapatista movement, because the version of Catholicism in Chiapas already kind of really has incorporated a fair amount of indigenous spirituality just in the history of Catholicism taking root there
2: yeah that makes sense uh matt and i a, a little while back um found these like great pictures online of uh easy ellen versions like of icons of the Virgin uh-huh. um, and yeah. uh, like one of them was like our lady of liberation and she's like wearing a uh you know a, a zapatista uh-huh. sort of outfit and uh-huh. yeah it's so uh wild and very yeah. cool yeah <laughs> yeah um the kind of thing that my uh, catholic teachers growing up probably would not have been fans of but <laughs> i into it um so when the zapatistas sort of emerged in the 90s uh you were saying earlier you know really kind of grabbed like national attention um and i think it's interesting to us too because it's a you know it's a post like cold war expression of what the left might be like in some parts of the world anyway and one that mobilizes
0: Um, marxists and anarchists too that's why
2: it's so exciting yeah. yeah right um but, like, the zapatistas are also really characterized by that specificity, right, um, in, in Chiapas. And so I guess uh, one thing I'm always curious about thinking with uh, people who know a lot more about the zapatistas than I do is uh, finding ways, I guess, to both kind of connect in solidarity with people in Chiapas and then uh, also maybe finding ways to, uh, to learn from them, right? So, like, I'm an American and I live in Canada. So uh, NAFTA, you know, one of the big sort of prompting things for... Uh, that first uh, insurgency I guess it's like being renegotiated and all that kind of stuff so yeah I mean as somebody who's tried to take these lessons into your own practice now doing other kinds of work uh, what have you kind of found in those two two domains
1: yeah so I think that historical locating of them is really important I think because you know 1994 was not that many years after the Roman wall had fallen and there was this kind of whole question you know I think throughout the world, but specifically on the left, of kind of what would social movements, what would liberation movements post, you know, the big kind of capitalist-communist divide look like. Um, and I think the says came along at a time and offered a very hopeful example of what they could look like. Um, so I think that that is one of the reasons that, you know, at that time, throughout the rest of the 90s, early 2000s, they were such a kind of example um for people around the world um, acting in in some type of liberation movements themselves. Um, And I think, you know, some of what I referenced before about their political philosophy, but, I mean, one thing that I really, I continue to take away from them, which is in some ways really abstract, but still very helpful, I think the kind of combination of having the kind of chutzpah to say, we're going to take on the Mexican state, we're going to take on international capitalism we're going to take on patriarchy but the humility to know that none of us have all the answers and that you know what we what that actually looks like is something that we have to kind of create day by day and and build you know step by step um and so i think that as kind of a broader that was just very different from the types of liberation movements that had kind of come previous to them in, in, in the late 20th century um and then, you know, I think I still try and balance that in my own social justice work of kind of connecting to the big picture, but also, you know, really trying to figure out what that looks like in the day to day. I think that, um, you know, different, there's so much to learn from. I think just the fact that, you know, you pointed to NAFTA, there's so many different things that, that, that you can draw from the says in terms of lessons um, you know, I encourage folks who are interested just to to delve into it a little bit more because I think different people will take away different lessons. Um, for me, I think um, in addition to that, the, to what I was mentioning before, I feel like it's really impacted my work just in terms of kind of thinking about things long term. You know, again, Zapatistas, I think we're very you know, they were very bold and impatient in terms of fighting, you know, what they were fighting for, but also really had a long view. And, you know, I think one of the last quotes of, of the book sort of talks about this woman who's who's elderly, talking about her granddaughter, but sort of talking about the, what they've won is just the beginning and the things that they're going to continue to fight for will be things that their, you know, great-great-great-grandchildren will kind of see the fruits of. Um, And so they taking the long view... Um, I think the kind of integration of, um, building power from below, like building real structures of, um, society that are based on, on justice and dignity and respect and the values that we want to see combined with, you know, really confronting the injustices that we, that we encounter. Um, I think honestly, some of the, uh, the integration of community, like the fact that, that, uh, that a lot of the Zapatistas are, peasants, you know, or subsistence farmers, there's a way that the kind of, that, that their radical political life is also integrated into kind of family and village life in a way that just feels way more kind of organic than often I think is the case for me, at least in this country, where things feel sometimes very compartmentalized. So just like the integration of, you know, what we're fighting for in our families, in our, you know, in our communities, in, in the world in general. Um, all of that is starting to get somewhat abstract. So I will leave it at that also because I could <laughs> go on forever about the, <laughs> the lessons I've learned. But I think, you know, I will just end by saying something I said in the beginning with this book in particular, what I would hope people would take away is, is if nothing else, kind of an example of what collective liberation can look like. And that it is possible. And really sort of a day to day, sort of like, this is what it looks like, and this is what it feels like, and this is how we got there. And it is possible. Um, so I think that is something that, you know, and then people can draw very different lessons, like I said, you know, on their from their own kind of experiences, what might be the most relevant for them um, from the kind of richness of the Zapatista movement
2: that's great that's an awesome hopeful uh charge i think yeah <laughs> probably one of the more hopeful endings we've had on a on a podcast episode <laughs> 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 um well cool well thanks again hillary for spending so much time chatting with us uh i know the book's been out for you know a few years now but still super super relevant and good um like Matt was saying, you know, there's so there's just a really unique window that you get into the Zapatista movement by focusing on day-to-day life and the day-to-day life of women in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I mean, people should be thankful for having that kind of resource in English, especially. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is actually coming out in Spanish this year, which I'm excited about. But I do feel like the English-speaking audience didn't have as much access to, you know, these women's stories in particular. So I really do... Um, appreciate you all having the interest in the topic and and really appreciate the invitation to be on and speak with you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so
2: much though. Well, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Magnificast. Uh, If you like what you heard, um, make sure you go support us on Patreon. We really like that kind of thing. It helps us pay for podcast hosting and uh, I don't know, do other fun things. Uh, also, we should probably note that we are on two podcast networks that are pretty neat. One's called Theology Corner, um, theologycorner.com, and the other one's called Critical Mediations, and that's uh, critmediations.com, and uh, both are cool and have lots of other good podcasts on it. Uh, so go check those all out. Lots of fun stuff. Uh, all right. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, like us, subscribe to us on iTunes. I can never remember what you do on iTunes. Leave us a review, though. That always helps out. All right. See you next time.